To support our vision to be the leader in improving healthcare for urologic patients worldwide, the Urology Care Foundation has established a series of humanitarian endowments that will generate grants to support individuals who provide direct urologic patient care to underserved communities in the United States and around the globe. As part of these efforts, we are doing a podcast series featuring urologists who are doing extraordinary healthcare mission work in urology. To learn more about how you can support these extraordinary missions, visit urologyhealth.org backslash give. Hi, today we have Dr. Humphreys with us to share his extraordinary mission work in urology. Hi, Dr. Humphreys. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Mitch Humphreys. I'm currently the chair and a professor of the urology at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Uh, I also volunteer and am one of the founding members of what is called GSD Healthcare or Global Surgical and Destination Healthcare, which is a nonprofit organization that facilitates humanitarian care, specializing in men's health to austere environments throughout the globe. Thank you. And may I ask, when did you start doing humanitarian work in urology? What motivated you to start this work? Yeah, so first started doing humanitarian work in urology dating back, probably I think our first mission was in 2011. And what prompted it is kind of a roundabout uh, story. But one of my patients is a Catholic priest in uh, Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And it was right after the earthquake. And um, my institution had initially sent a uh, mission to Haiti to do general health relief for general health and disaster relief from the fallout from the major earthquake in Haiti. And then from that, we met the relationship. His name's Father Rick Frasche. Uh, we met him, and he later became my patient. He's kind of an interesting gentleman. And that he's not only the Catholic priest, but afterwards he went and um, got his med school um, degree and then came back and was practicing medicine out of the back of a van. And then he started a children's hospital and then from a cholera segregation tent started an adult hospital. And uh, he became my patient because he was suffering from BPH that was uh, creating inability for him to do his own work. So he was my patient, and we performed a procedure on him called the holopolmium laser nucleation of the prostate. And uh, when he was there, he said, hey, this has been incredible. Can you do this for some of my patients in Haiti? And I really didn't think too much about it, but I said, sure, no problem. Not, not thinking what challenges would be in front of us and not thinking about what that would entail or how involved that would be or the logistics or those things. Um, but I, I learned very quickly that it's uh, a lot more involved than uh, saying yes. And, and so there's a lot of work and effort that went behind the scenes. And so it, that's kind of how it, it all started in the premise of one patient asking what request, um, highlighting where there was truly a need, and then gathering together a team. But my particular passion for it is, and, and I think this is what all healthcare providers share, is really a passion for taking care of people. I, I think everybody got into healthcare and medicine um, for a uh, clear and just system and uh, agnostic system when it comes to healthcare and helping people. And that's kind of what motivates most people. And, and I think that the business of medicine, the, 
the stresses on our lives, the, the other things that go along with practicing medicine, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's health systems, uh, those things sometimes uh, get in the way of us doing that fundamental human-to-human care and contact. And so for me, it was just that motivation of getting back to people just caring for people. No, definitely. No, thank you for sharing it. I, it's so interesting to me um, just how it all starts with one person and how um, how you can just make that impact. And then it that whole spirals down just um, volunteering and helping others. And I just I have to ask, how is what you're doing? I mean, you shared your one experience with us, but how is what you're doing making an impact on these individuals lives in these underserved areas? Yeah, so one of the things is, I, I think when you start to think about um, healthcare mission work and things like that, it's easy to become overwhelmed. And I had done a couple things early in med school and things like that were volunteered and you'd go in and go out. And, uh, I, I, and so when you, when you think about volunteerism, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the opportunities and, and the size of some of these organizations we were looking to create something maybe a little bit more personal. And so when we look at Haiti and when you look at the, the gross domestic product and the abject poverty that exists in that country, um, they call it almost a country of women and children um, because uh, when the health issues impact the males in the patriarchal portion of that society, they lose their support. They lose that income source. They lose that um, that kind of force in that family structure and in that community. So what we chose to do was really focus on men's health issues and how can we restore the dignity and the sanctity of uh, and the quality of life for some of these patients to allow them to go to work uh, because a lot of them are very proud. They want to work. They want to contribute but their health issues um, separate and keep them from doing that. So we decided that in, in among other things, we do some general surgery procedures as well, but really how do we, how do we give men their dignity back? How do we get them back to work where they can support their families? And then how do they pay it forward in the community where it's not just uh, one time you show up and then you don't show up again. And so how do we create that credibility and that transactional that goes beyond just a single procedure, but how do you inspire and how do you get the trust of the people there? And I think the big thing that we had to overcome was really figuring out not how we just come in and do it ourselves, but how do we integrate ourselves into that health system and how do we partner with our Haitian partners and how do we motivate, train, and uh, get our Haitian partners and colleagues to care for these patients before, during, and after? And how do we create um, self-sustainability. You know, my best day is when they, they no longer need us and, and we're just there in an advisory capacitory, which we, we've been working for for a long time. No, that, that's so interesting. So I know when you go to Haiti and uh, to other places, I'm sure your, um, your setting where you're treating these patients looks completely different than your traditional setting in, in the clinical area. Can you explain the differences between um, the environment that you work in there? Yeah, so it's a completely different environment. And I think that that's something that you have to be willing to um, be adaptable to. 
Um, I think sometimes medicine is very easy to get stuck into our rigid configurations of how we do things, what we're used to, the support structures that we have. But how can you go into a place and not take it over, but instead integrate into their health system? And, and how can you help facilitate advancement of their health system? I, I always say it's, it's taking the best of every world without the bureaucracy. So we're able to create high quality. And it was very important to us from the beginning that no matter where we go, if we weren't able to provide this, the same safe, high quality care that we could in the United States, that it wasn't worth it. So how do you recreate that model of healthcare delivery? Uh, and it's kind of nice because you're not dealing with insurance companies. You're not dealing with pre-authorizations. But we did basic things that people don't think about, and you and you have to be adaptable. Things like starting medical charts, things like starting safety checklists, um, having uh, procedural checklists on how ORs are set up, how clinics are run, how things are prepped, how things are cleaned, post-operative checklists, um, charting systems. These are things that we take for granted, um, even things like banding. But in an environment like Haiti, where there's language barriers, there's socioeconomic barriers, where a lot of the patients don't really know when they are born. A lot of the patients have never seen a physician before. Um, a lot of the patients have a lot of undiagnosed uh, general health conditions that we're not used to. You know, usually in the United States, when, when you think about BPH, it's almost a disease of inconvenience. If you've got BPH, you may get up a couple times a night, you go to see your physician, you get started on medical therapy. If that doesn't work, you escalate to surgical therapy. If that surgical therapy doesn't work in a year or two, you go back and have a different therapy. And so you can try all these things because you have access to healthcare. In Haiti, you know, they've never seen a doctor. So you may be thinking about how can I do a surgical procedure on somebody with a blood pressure of 220 over 130? And what do we need to do about this patient's blood pressure? Because this has gone undiagnosed and this patient's at risk for stroke or heart disease or many of the other things. And and how can we do this so that they don't need uh, reusable healthcare um, assets because there's just no provisions for that in that country? So, for example, where we think of BPH as a disease of inconvenience, there, uh, if they have BPH and they can't urinate, they go into urinary retention or slowly or surely, and then they go into renal failure. Once they go into renal failure, there's no dialysis. There's no opportunity for them to get dialysis, so they pass away. Or if they are fortunate enough to get a Foley catheter, they don't have the resources to get that Foley catheter changed, and so they die from infectious complications from an indwelling Foley catheter. Or that tube gets left in there, and they form stones and infections, and, and it's really um, much more of a significant disease rather than just a quality of life like it is in the United States. That's really eye-opening, honestly. But we kind of take for granted in our own country and other countries um, are just, you know, just exactly what you said. Um, you're just trying to do basic care first and then also your urology um, procedures and everything. It's so interesting, um, just the difference between those. And I know, um, I know you started in 2011, you said, and um, doing this work. And I'm sure you can share many stories um, of different patients and, and everything. Is there one particular story that really um, just has stuck with you? And can you share that with us? 
Yeah, there's there's a lot of stories that stick with you because you get to meet a lot of patients. And I, and I will say, while we started this work in 2011, it's it's been an evolution, and it's not done in singularity. It takes an entire team and organization. And one thing that I would put a plug in for for anybody that's listening is that there's really no small parts in this. Just by the fact of having interest shows a certain engagement in humanita- in humanitarian relief. So whether it's donating time, a supply, um, donating to an organization, all those things do translate to, into these countries to people that need them. But um, perhaps one of the one of the most compelling stories I can remember is I had a uh, old gentleman um, that was probably about 68 years old, came in with a Foley catheter that he had had for 12 years. And uh, he came in and uh, he hadn't worked uh, because he had this Foley catheter and he had a bag that he would wear and he would often carry it on his head because he didn't have uh, anywhere else. A lot of times they would put their Foley catheter bags in their pockets. They don't have elastic to hold these on their legs, uh, things like that. So he was dealing with this Foley catheter bag. It would often spill. He had an odor around him. His family castigated him to living outside uh, of the family. And so he was kind of alone in a little shack, kind of ostracized by his family and his community, unable to work or do anything. Um, he came to us. We did his um, holop. Um, and then the next day, he was able to, immediate ur- to immediately urinate without any problem. And so I went and saw him that next day, and he was crying in tears. And I'm like, oh, my gosh is he in pain i'm doing physical exam i've got the translator over and i'm saying you know what what's going on is, is he hurting where's where's he hurting looking to see if anything has gone on and he said no he's just crying because he says it's been 12 years since he's been able to be part of his family since he's been able to lay with his wife and now you've given him that back he can urinate he can control and he says this is a gift greater than god and he was so appreciative for this, it turned out the next year we came back, he took a job as a janitor at this uh, hospital and was there cleaning up and helping to take care of other patients. And it, it completely turned his life around. And that's the kind of impact we're hoping to have. Wow. Wow. That's life changing. Honestly, like it's just very moving. I can see why <laughs> that has stuck with you for sure. Um, can you share why is it so important for organizations like the Urology Care Foundation to support these global efforts? Well, I, I think it's so important because it really gets down to that uh, that mission where we're we're really trying to take care of people, and, and no matter where they are, what their circumstances, um, socially, politically, geographically, um, just try to take care of patients and give them some kind of quality of life. Um, taking the advancements in techniques and technology and spreading them out. And it's not just a matter of delivering care. I always say that the clinical care we provide is the is our currency, but it's really the currency that buys us the trust where these people allow us to come in and partner with their Haitian physicians, the Haitian nurses, the other patients um, that allows the spread of that technology because they know we're not just coming in once, that we're, we're committed to them and that people there care about them no matter what circumstance life's brought them. And, and to give any kind of support to that really gives these people hope 
and tries to restore some kind of quality of life with them. And I think that if we can do that as a specialty and as an as a organization that can impact the good of others, it's kind of our duty to give back in some way, shape, or fashion. Definitely. So I know um, you mentioned earlier that it, it does take preparation to go on these um, on these missions. So um, I know like the language barriers and, you know, you can't just hop on a plane and just say, I want to go help. There, There's preparation involved. Um, can you explain what needs to happen ahead of time to be able to do this work? Or there, do you bring medicines with you? Or is that all there with the organization you're with? How does that all work? It, there's there's so much incredible amount of uh, preparation that goes into this, and I've learned so much over the past uh, eight nine years of doing this over and over. Uh, and I would say that no two trips are are, are the exact same. Uh, I can tell you one of the reasons we explored the men's health in inoculation because you're able to provide a surgery or a procedure to a patient that provides immediate benefit. And then it's a lifetime solution, something that has a retreatment rate of less than 1%, also something that has a transfusion rate of less than 1%, where men universally do well. But with this, this is a solution that's reliant, uh, it used to be reliant on a on a 100-watt homium laser. Uh, and how do you get a homium laser into Haiti? And we had to partner with industry. Then we got it there. Um, I bought a used unit and we repaired it. And, uh, you know, the Haitian government thought that, well, this is a weapon of mass destruction. You can't bring a weapon in because uh, they hear laser. I mean, just so many little things, um, working with customs, uh, working with industry partners to support these mi- uh, missions. Uh, we work a lot with AmeriCares um, to provide medications and anesthesia. And a lot of times, Health organizations and systems contribute to us too, whether it's PPE, whether it's IV tubing, whether it's fully catheters. We found an incredible, um, generous spirit of everybody out there that does want to help and believes in this type of relief work. So it's it's a matter of partnering with an organization or group that's dedicated and um, does these kind of things because it takes it takes a lot of discretionary time on nights and weekends. But as I alluded to earlier. There's no small part to play in this. Um, we take volunteers. We have a whole process. But we've learned a lot through going through it, through logistics, through um, also safety. Um, we also send an advanced team to look because Haiti's not always the safest place. So there has to be an environmental assessment where we um, look to see what safety. Then you have to look at the accommodations of your team. We've had members of our team get sick with dengue fever despite best precautions and things like that. So there's a whole lot that goes into it from the smallest things um, to team transport, to safety, to patient transport. Also, a a large part of what we do is truly an educational mission where we partner with nurses, physicians, and surgeons in these other countries. We teach them the techniques, the basics, as well as some of the advanced stuff. And there's always problems. And and so part of this, you have to be adaptable. I, I almost call it the MacGyver of medicine. Because uh, I think one year, you know, the only air-conditioned place in this whole hospital was the OR suite. And um, these patients were getting kind of cold. So what we'd have to do is take our irrigation and sterile bags and lay them out on black bags and let the solar heat them up to 100 degrees. And then we'd 
uh, go in and then we'd have body temperature fluids to give patients. And so it helped with the uh, anesthetic supplies, with the cooling. Our laser um, that is a, was, is a 30 watt laser, you know, we take for granted the clean power grid and stuff that we have in the United States. Well, there, uh, the power grid in Haiti is very unpredictable. So we'd run off a generator. And if any of the gas in that uh, generator had water in it, the diesel, everything would shut off. So then we had to hook up 30 car batteries in series to provide us a 30-minute gap in power in case we were in the middle of an operation or something to get that patient safety out. So coming up with a plan A, B, and C and preparing for those worst disasters allows your team to be very prepared. And so it's all about preparation and it's all about experience because as long as we've been doing this, no two trips are the same. And it's always an amazing experience just to see uh, the humanity of both your patients and the team members. The team members are all getting together, not because anybody's getting paid, not because anybody's getting any accolades, but they're just doing it for their fellow human beings. And everybody's just elbow to elbow working. There's there's a lot of respect. There's that shared sense of purpose and community. And it's it's really, for me, it's the most rewarding part of medicine to be affiliated with uh, an organization like that. It's incredible the amount of prep work that goes into all of these. And like you said, no two trips are the same. And I, I can only imagine. And I thank you for sharing your experiences with us and uh, such incredible opportunities um, to help people. Um, is there anything else you would like to share about your volunteer work before we go? Yeah, I, again, I would just like to say that um, Haiti is an amazing country of need. There's uh, other places and other things. And um, I think that uh, anybody that wants to be involved can be involved. I mean, we've with our trips, we've had people ranging from uh, yoga instructors to attorneys um, that have come over there um, to help our teams out. And it's everything from running pathology um, to surgery, to assisting, to triaging patients, um, to having people back on the stateside that help us pack bags and plan things and create our itineraries and our manifests and help with the logistics. Um, so you can be as involved as you want to be or just affiliated with it. I think just having an interest in it already moves the bar in the right direction. And I would just tell people to find something that resonates with them, get engaged however they would like to, be involved however they would like to, whether it's through the AUA mechanisms or the other mechanisms out there. There's a lot of great causes out there a lot of opportunity for us to spread a lot of good in this world. Dr. Humphreys, thank you so much for your time and sharing your incredible mission work in urology. I really appreciate and and I enjoyed learning more about how we can help and the different opportunities that are available. So I just thank you for your time and, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. It is my pleasure. And I'd like to thank you guys for bringing this to the uh, forefront and getting the message out and thinking about all the other lives that this is going to impact. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, the official foundation of the American Urological Association. For more information on today's topic and for all things urology health, visit urologyhealth.org. That's urologyhealth.org.